This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would reach us by your word. That you would change us. That you would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ that we might know Him and glorify Him. This we ask in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Well, this morning we have an account from Luke of a question that the disciples were asked by Jesus. It is an important question. It is a question that was fixed in time and space, but it is a question that comes not only to them, but to you and to me as well. Who is Jesus? It's a question that many around us ask. It's a question that many volunteer a variety of answers to. But this morning we will see Luke's culmination of his study of the person of Jesus Christ, telling us who Jesus is, not just for the disciples, 
but for you and me as well. And so this morning we will see three things about this interchange. First, we will see the most important question. The most important question in all of the universe. And then secondly, we will find the meaning in the answer. Because the question does indeed have an answer and it has a meaning that goes beyond the space and time of Luke's account. And then thirdly, we will see that there is a consequence to believing. A consequence of understanding the question and knowing the answer, how it affects our lives each and every day. Well, let's begin then by looking at verse 18 and this important question that comes. Let's look initially at the setup for this. In verse 18, Luke says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? So this is a question that Jesus is asking, and he wants to know, What do people say about me? Now remember Luke's purpose here in all of the Gospel, as we go back to chapter 1, that Luke's purpose is to give us certainty about the things we have been taught. And so there is a purpose to Luke including this description and this question here and now. The disciples have seen a great many things. Miracles. Wondrous teaching. And the disciples have actually done a great many things, including miracles and teaching. And now there is about to be a shift in Jesus' ministry. He is about to begin moving away from Galilee, from his home area, as it were, and to set his face toward Jerusalem. From this point on, his work will begin to be emphasized. The work of Jesus that will culminate in his death burial, and resurrection. But in order for us to begin with our friend Luke to understand the work of Jesus, we have to come to final clarity about the person of Jesus. Now, Luke has been laying this out for us for chapter upon chapter, teaching us who Jesus is, and right here he wants to make it crystal clear there is a method to Luke's writing. Between verse 17... And verse 18 in the Gospel of Mark are more than two chapters. Seven significant incidents that happen in Jesus' life. And Luke goes right past them to here because you see, he wants us to understand. He wants it highlighted who Jesus is. You will recall just a few verses ago, this question was asked by Herod. Who is this guy? I hear all of these things going on. And as if to underline it and put an exclamation point next to it, Luke brings this incident right to the forefront. And he marks it off for us as he so often does by telling us that Jesus was at prayer. If you have an opportunity this afternoon, peruse back through the first eight chapters of Luke. And you will see that at each and every significant instance of a new phase of his ministry or something significant in his life, Jesus marks them off by prayer. Before his baptism. Before he preaches for the first time in Luke 4. Before he chooses the twelve disciples. 
Now at this point, and later, before the transfiguration, Jesus knows that we do not undertake significant events without prayer. Is that your practice in life? As you think through where to go to college, what car to buy, how to raise your children, what job to take, do you mark those events off by prayer? Do you seek the Father's will and to focus your life in accordance with His will? This is what Jesus did. You see, Jesus sets this apart by prayer. And he asks then the disciples this question, Who do the crowds say that I am? And he begins on a very general level. Even with the word crowd is general, right? Look at all those people out there. You've been out amongst them, disciples. What do they say? What are you hearing? And they begin to answer. There are a variety of answers that come from the crowds. Well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you may be a prophet, risen. The answer from the crowds varies. The first answer is that you are John the Baptist, some think. Now, initially, we might think this is a sign of great respect. John the Baptist was a powerful preacher. He was used mightily of God. He stood against corruption and immorality. That's paying Jesus a pretty good compliment. You might even be able to argue that at this point, John the Baptist is more famous than Jesus from all that he's done. But there's something else here that we have to understand. Other than the fact that they were cousins, John and Jesus didn't exactly look and act alike, did they? John looked like something between a cross of a wild mountain man and a wild man of the desert. The clothing he wore was odd. The food he ate was odd. And Jesus was a bit more refined, more in the mainstream of the way he looked and ate. And you'd almost want to say to someone who answers this, have you ever met John the Baptist? Have you met Jesus? Because they don't look alike. Right? And so, while there's initial respect here, it shows that these people who want to show Jesus respect don't really know who He is. We see that in our day and age too, don't we? People who have words of flowering praise for Jesus. You walk up to someone and say, well, who's Jesus? And they talk about how great He is. And you say, well, that's interesting. Which passage in the Bible do you like most about Jesus? And they look at you and they say, what's a Bible? They say, well, I guess you don't know Jesus very well. Well, others think he's not John the Baptist. Others say that he's Elijah. Now, these are folks who have a vague understanding of the scriptures and of history because they know the story of Elijah. Maybe they sat through Sunday schools where people talked about Elijah raising people from the dead, and, and feeding people miraculously. And they've heard stories about Jesus, and they think these things sort of go together. Jesus does similar things to Elijah. Perhaps they're even hoping for the future. Because, of course, there's a prophecy in Malachi 4, where the Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's a vague sense of spirituality with hope for the future, 
hoping things will work out for the best. But again, they don't really know Jesus. It's not sufficient to think vaguely spiritually. It's not sufficient to have hope for the future. You must know who Jesus is. A third set of people say he must be a risen prophet. And that makes some sense too. Like Moses, he gave bread in the wilderness. Like Moses, he taught the law. Well, or like another prophet, Jeremiah. He taught God's word. He challenged God's people. He fought the powers that be. And so maybe Jesus is a bit like Jeremiah as well. There are so many different options here, but what we learn from this is that these people don't know who Jesus is. Not because they have the wrong answers. They have the wrong answers because they don't know Jesus. This is not very different from our lives today, is it? There are all sorts of answers that people give to the question, who is Jesus? Some people say, he's a complete fiction. He's like Huckleberry Finn, or Felix the Cat, or Daffy Duck. He's completely made up. It's a story that makes us feel good. He never really lived. He never really existed. He's some kind of legend that Christians have made up to make themselves feel better. And what's important is our needs and how we can feel better. And if we have to invent someone to make us feel better, that's okay. One famous 19th century liberal put it this way, the the Jesus of Nazareth, who came forward publicly as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work final consecration, never had any existence. He is a figure designed by rationalism, endowed with life by liberalism, and clothed by modern theology in historical garb. He's made up. Others will try and find some sort of benefit or glory to Jesus. According to Muslims, for example, Jesus is a prophet. He's one who should be respected. But that's not the truth, is it? According to Jehovah's Witnesses, He is the highest of all of created beings. But that's not the truth either, is it? There is a sense in which those who have a vague spirituality think good things about Jesus and somehow He's a connection we have to God, but they don't really know who He is. We might call that Oprah theology. But there's another answer as well that is perhaps the most common, and that is that Jesus is a great moral teacher. He is perhaps the most famous in all of the pantheon of great philosophers, philanthropists, and teachers. But this, of course, denies that he was anything other than a man who taught. He was not God. Quite frankly, he was not who he claimed to be. And as has been said down through the ages, starting with Aquinas and down through to C.S. Lewis, I don't know how we can say a man is a great moral teacher when he claims to be God and he is not. He's a liar. We're not really left with that option. 
This option is only given so that we might somehow make Jesus palatable to the world around us. J. Gresham Machen put it this way, So modern liberalism, placing Jesus alongside other benefactors of mankind, is perfectly inoffensive to the modern world. All men speak well of it. It is entirely inoffensive. But it is also entirely futile. It's an attempt to make Jesus popular. Well, the disciples give these answers and Jesus then looks at them and begins to make it personal. He turns to them and he doesn't ask for the details of the other answers. In verse 20 he says, But who do you say that I am? You see, Jesus isn't interested in a Gallup poll. He's not interested in generalities. He looks right at them and he wants them to tell him what they think about it. The Greek is actually very clear. The first word out of Jesus' mouth is you. You. But you. Who do you think that I am? And this is critical. He wants a personal commitment from the disciples. This is not just a matter of intellectual curiosity. It's not just something to be thought about and bandied about and debated. No, it is the most important question for the disciples to answer. It is the most important question for you to answer because it is the most important question in all of the universe. Who is Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the most important person in the world. That's why. Why? Because our relation to Jesus is everything. Nothing else makes sense. Nothing else matters outside of the context of our relationship to Jesus. So Jesus pointedly asks them, and Peter answers, you are the Christ of God. He gives a different answer, the right answer, an answer that comes not from the mind, not even from the heart, but an answer that comes from the Lord God Himself, from faith that Peter has as it has been given to him by the Father. Matthew makes this clear for us as he describes this incident in Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you know who Jesus is? If you struggle, you don't need more evidence. You don't need more authority. You don't need someone who has authority over you to tell you you must believe in Jesus. If you struggle, what you need is the work of grace of the living God in your life. That's how we know who Jesus is. It's the work of God in our life. And when we hear this answer from Peter, it's just the beginning. Because you see, there is deep and profound meaning in this very short answer. The Christ of God. 
The first thing that we see is it is a fulfillment of a promise. A promise from the ages from God. Peter gives us the answer here in verse 20. And as usual, he is the spokesman for the other disciples. Now, I know part of what comes to us as we read the Bible and hear these stories is Peter speaks too quickly. And his foot goes in his mouth too quickly. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to be amongst the disciples when this question is asked? Who do you say that I am? You know, before Peter answers, John is looking at his shoes. And Matthew is straightening his tunic. And everybody's kind of looking at the ground. I'm not going to answer. Last time I answered, I was dead wrong. No way. I'm not going to answer. You can answer. No, I'm not going to answer. Wait, let's let Peter answer. Peter likes to answer. See, you can just imagine here. They're all a bit hesitant, but not Peter. The love of Jesus Christ has gripped his heart. The faith that comes from the Lord himself makes Peter bold. And he answers. And as usual, he doesn't understand everything. He gives the right answer, but he doesn't understand it in all of its depth. The Christ, that is, you are the anointed one. The Christ of God, that is, you come from God Himself. And and this tells us something. An anointing, which is what the Christ means. Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah, which is simply the word that we would use in English for anointed one. One who had been set apart for the work of God. Usually, physically through the act of being anointed or having oil poured over their head. God had promised a deliverer, a Messiah who would come and redeem. He promised it all the way back in Genesis 3.15. When He said one would come that would crush the head of the serpent. He promised it back in Deuteronomy 18.18 when He said He would give to them a prophet like unto Moses. He promised it in Micah 5 when He said a king would come to rule over the earth from Bethlehem. He promised it in 2 Samuel when he said the throne of David would be forever and ever. This is the context for the Christ of God. When Peter says this, he knows the Scriptures and this is what he knows and expects. But there is an unexpected truth that Jesus gives to him. You see... The expectation from these scriptures had grown in the people of Jesus' day. They were expecting a Messiah. And from their understanding of the Bible, what they were expecting was some kind of superhuman figure. Sort of a cross between a bodybuilding Arnold Schwarzenegger and General Patton and Albert Einstein, who would come together and give them everything that they couldn't get for themselves. He would come and defeat their enemies, because they couldn't. He would get rid of the Romans. He would get rid of all of their enemies and save them. He would be the one that would make them important again. And Jerusalem, that had become a backwater town, would once again be the center of all of the earth. That's what He would do for them. And He would give them what they needed. 
all that they needed, all of their troubles would go away. This is who the Messiah would be. This is, sadly, often an expectation in our world, isn't it? Sadly, even in the church. That the Messiah, the one who was to come, that Jesus serves to meet each and all of our needs. He's a Mr. Fix-It and provider. And who Jesus is, is defined by what we want and we need. But you see, Jesus turns their world completely upside down. You see it in verse 22? He says to them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now remember the context and the expectation. The conquering warrior, genius king. And Jesus says, he must suffer. How could this be? Jesus, quick, come on. Let me take you on a tour through the Bible. I don't think it says anything in here about that. You're supposed to be the one that fixes everything. You're supposed to be the one who wins, the one who protects us. The one who provides for us. And Jesus says, it means suffering. How could this be? The question then comes to us. What are we looking for? When we are asked the question, who is Jesus? What are we looking for? Are we mad that he is a suffering Messiah? Now, before you answer too quickly, close your eyes and think of your reaction when the Supreme Court hands down a decision that's bad for Christians. Or when a law is passed that makes Christians suffer. Or when Christians are kidnapped throughout the world. And what rolls up in your heart is, Why, Jesus? Smite them. Why aren't we winning? We're supposed to be winning, not losing. And remember, the Messiah we have is a suffering Messiah. But it's more than that. He says, the Son of Man must suffer, but he must also be rejected. Now, this is not the kind of rejection that we might think happens casually every day around us. This is not the sort of thing to picture in your mind as if you were handing out tracts as people walked swiftly by you and they said, no thanks. No, this word means, it actually has a legal terminology to it. It means after very close scrutiny and weighing of the evidence, you deem something or regard something as completely unworthy and useless. That is what the religious establishment thought of Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't what they wanted. He wasn't their kind of Messiah. And so therefore he wasn't a worthy Messiah. He must suffer. He must be rejected. And then he says, 
He must be killed and on the third day be raised. And here Jesus, in one half of a verse, summarizes the core of the gospel. That Jesus came to live and to die and to rise again. That He might be God's anointed one. That He might be all that we need or could ever ask for. That He could accomplish the mission the Father sent Him on. It's the core of the gospel. He's saying to the disciples here, you need to reorient your mind. You think we're going this way and we're not. We're going that way. Get in line. And then he does something very odd in verse 21. Perhaps when we read this, it puzzled you. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, could you imagine if the pastor from the pulpit said, now listen, this week we have vacation Bible school. No one should do any evangelism at all. Stop it. No talking about the Bible. No talking about Jesus. I'm looking at you. Zip it. You'd think I was nuts. Right? Isn't that our whole purpose? To tell others about the Bible? To tell others about Jesus? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, it gets us back to our point from before. You see, if they just go around and say Jesus is the Messiah... Everyone's going to have the wrong idea because they have the wrong expectation. Jesus is saying, don't put the cart in front of the horse. You need to first learn more about what I have just introduced to you, about suffering, about rejection, about death and resurrection. And then when you have learned, then we have to teach others. We don't want to feed their false impressions. That's why you have to be silent for now. Not forever, but for now. Now this says something to us. It says that we must be, if we are to be followers of Jesus, we must be students of the book. We must understand this gospel. We must understand who the Messiah is. We must know who Jesus is so that we can properly teach others. This is critical. It doesn't mean you need to know everything under the sun. But it means we must be students of Jesus. We need to understand Him better to share Him. It's all about Him, not about us. Well, the most important question in all of the world is asked. And the meaning of that answer goes beyond even what we initially think. But there is a consequence, Jesus says to this answer and believing it. A consequence that we must deal with each and every day. It begins with a life of discipleship. Look with me at verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now again, can you imagine the disciples? What have we gotten ourselves into? First he tells us he's going to suffer, and now he says following him means misery. 
We thought that we were on the right side of history. And here we are now suffering. Put a different way. What does it mean to you to follow Jesus? One commenter on the book of Luke, Phil Riken, puts it this way succinctly, and it's, it's so wonderful and short. He says, Often we follow Jesus as long as He was going more or less the way we were planning to go. Then we're happy to follow Him. But you see, that's not following Jesus. That's following ourselves. And Jesus makes this very real for us. He says this is a daily thing. This is not a once in a lifetime thing. This is each and every day we must live the life of discipleship. And he corrects their expectations. He says, anyone who would follow me. There are no exceptions. It's not just that those who are missionaries to deepest, darkest Africa need to do this. It's not just those who are planting churches in Pakistan and India need to do this. It's not just pastors that need to do this. It's each and every Christian, without exception, anyone who would follow Jesus must be this kind of disciple. This instruction is for you today. And what does it mean? Jesus gives us three verbs to live by. First, he says, you must deny yourself. This is a very strong word. It almost means you are to forget yourself. You're to be so busy being other-centered that you forget who you are. It's the very opposite of self-focus. And if we are honest with ourselves, self-focus is one of the biggest problems of the modern American church. You see, we think, what can Christianity do for me? How can reading the Bible help my marriage? Help my finances? Help my parenting? Help me in my job? It's a focus upon myself. And what happens is, it decreases my understanding and willingness and ability to evangelize. It decreases my outreach because I'm focused on myself. And you see, Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you have to be other-focused. This is why evangelism is not an option for the Christian. It's part of who you are. Jesus says, follow me in doing this. He is the ultimate denier. He denied himself the pleasures of sin. He denied himself his infinite and eternal union and communion with the Father and the Spirit by taking on flesh. He denied himself freedom from pain and misery. There's a second verb. Take up. Take up your cross daily. Now, we need to, again, adjust our expectations here. You see, sometimes what happens is we go into the grocery store and we get in line in the ten items or less, and the three people in front of us have 15 items. And we say to the, our friend, well, I guess this is our cross to bear. Right? Or we have a fight with our parents or a fight with our children and we say, well, this is the cross I have to bear. No. That's called life. 
What Jesus means here by daily taking up your cross is to daily identify with Him. And that means that you will face ostracism. You will face persecution. You will face snide comments. You will face being left out. But for Jesus, you take it up daily. It requires daily obedience. It requires seeing Jesus in the ordinary and the everyday. The third thing we must do is follow. We must see where Jesus is going and we follow his lead. This is crucial to being a disciple of Jesus. But there is a cost to this life of discipleship. You know the old saying, there is no such thing as a free lunch. It's true. There is a cost to discipleship. You see, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, what Jesus is saying here is we cannot hold on to the world and have Jesus. What we cannot do is believe that our security and our joy are up to us and have Jesus. You see, our focus has to be not on trying to save ourselves, but on following Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, those who would save their life. Do you see? It's theoretical. You cannot do it, but you will lose it. And those who lose their life, what? Will save it. A certainty. A fact. You see, Jesus can say, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And the reality of the situation is, Jesus is worth more than an Xbox. Jesus is worth more than a smartphone. More than a summer vacation. More than a flashy car. More even than friendships or relationships. As a matter of fact, the whole world is not worth Jesus. Anything that you could even try to think up to have instead of Jesus isn't worth it. That's what Jesus says. And it's a critical decision then that comes to us. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes. This is not a theory. Your eternal destiny rides upon it. The answer to this question. Who is Jesus? What does he mean to me? And the promise we get from Jesus in verse 27 is comforting. But I will tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. If you know by faith the answer to this question, Jesus gives you certainty. You will see the kingdom of God. Are you ready to see the kingdom of God? Do you know the answer to the question? Are you willing to live a life of denial, of taking up your cross, and of following? Jesus asks the most important question in the world. And the only answer 
is the true answer that Peter gives. The Christ of God. May it be the answer of your heart and of my heart this morning. Let's pray.